Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought, my, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. When God saw what the people of Nineveh did, how they turned from their evil, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until it should see, he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching feast wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This is God's word. All right. Thank you so much. And um, I'll simply offer this prayer over our time. Now may the words of my mouth the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So uh, it's interesting. I didn't think about this until I was going into, into the week of preparation. But this is the, uh, this is the first biblical text I ever uh, created a message on. Actually, back when I was about 18 um, at uh, the church where I grew up, I was feeling a sense that I was being compelled to give more of my life. I heard a message uh, from an African-American leader, an inner city leader at a youth conference where he talked about some of the, the evils that were happening in his community. And he suggested that there are some people who are supposed to give more of their lives to God's work. And he talked about transformation they were seeing in their community. Um, he talked about just the, the efforts that are needed to break through into dark places and to do difficult things to reach people, um, not only with the message of Jesus, but with transforming love. He talked about 
people who were stuck kind of in the, uh, in the strip club trade and things like this. And he said, look, it's not enough just to go and, and say, hey, you need Jesus. They know that. Um, you're going to have to do something about the situation. Uh, you're going to have to be a part of a church that actually helps change the dynamic. Uh, and, I, and I heard this as an 18-year-old. And I started thinking about myself, my friends, and my church and what we were supposed to do. Well, I got home, and that was a small church, about, about probably size of what we've got going on here, a little bit smaller, or a little bit bigger, sorry. And they would have all the kids get up and share what you learned. And I was like the oldest, and so I got up and, and I told them that um, I, I was supposed to be in ministry. I, was, uh, I felt called to ministry. And I mentioned that I was happy to start now if they were ready. And shockingly, um, they gave me a job. So they, uh, they created a very part-time job. I played, uh, played the bongos um, and I cut the grass. I visited people in the hospital, which is the one that, that was like the stretch. I was like, oh shoot, like, that's gonna be interesting. Um, and, uh, and it was, and it was good. And I, uh, I took attendance and I did whatever, right? Just uh, whatever they could do. And by took attendance, I had to collect cards from everybody and enter all the data, which if you know me at all, you know, was painful um, for me. So they, at some point, had a youth-led Sunday evening service. And so since I was called to ministry, they asked me to share. And I'd read the book of Jonah recently, and I... I especially was captured by this last part. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And I thought this needed to be shared, and I had reasons for that. As a young guy, um, and this is the value of including, I think, young people in ministry, um, because I was, I was grateful for my job, but I also saw some issues within the church that kind of my fresh eyes could see. I saw a disconnect, and I think it's one that haunts churches um, all the time. We absolutely claimed the mission of God. We claimed that we were about it, that it was the most important thing to us, and I believe we really meant that. But we struggled with doing it where we were. As is true in many areas, we were in a neighborhood that was changing. It was the Amphi neighborhood here in Tucson, if you're familiar with it, over by Amphi High School and Amphi Middle School. And when the church was established there, that was North Tucson. It was middle class and white. Uh, when they started, the majority of Americans worshiped and gave their money. It was all built in. And it was a, a generally, you, you chose your church because it was your tradition. So this was a, a church where everyone had kind of come from other parts of the country because this was their particular brand. They chose this church. And, they, and there they were in a pretty, um, yeah, in a, in a community where Everybody was kind of the same. By the time I was at the church, that area was central Tucson, primarily Latino with a large influx of refugees, meaning there was a diversity of religion and culture uh, that most of these folks had, had never experienced before. It, it was pretty new um, at the time I was there, and by new I mean within the last decade or so. And the remaining whites were blue collar and uh, most children in the area were being raised by agnostic parents. I would say especially the whites, the, uh, the Latinos and folks from other countries were more actually religious. So issues, though, were beginning to arise. There was more crime in the area, more drugs, and there was, there was a ton 
um, a lot of latchkey kids. And what I mean by that, of course, is kids who, whose parents would not be home when they'd get out of school. They were, they were taking care of themselves for much of the day. So every week, our church parking lot filled up with middle school and high school students whose parents were not home. And I kid you not, like hundreds of kids, because they'd leave Amphi High and Amphi Middle School, and our church was right in between, and they would just hang out in the church parking lot. And the general um, concern with them was that they were, uh, you know, it was like, let's get them moved on, right? Like, they might hurt the property. Um, There were, yeah, there were... African and Middle Eastern refugees filling the apartments. Um, We had a Spanish-speaking church um, that had asked to rent from us, and it was actually growing. Our church professed a a desire to reach the community, but there were some roadblocks for us in that situation. And there are a couple that are very memorable to me. I was in a meeting one time. It was one where they they had whole church meetings, um, and it was the carpet, I remember, being discussed. Uh, I'm sure this was the tip of the iceberg, but the Spanish church was growing. They were growing out of their their space. They didn't have enough room, and they wanted to move into the main room. They were kind of in a side room, Um, and somebody brought up, they said, you know, they're going to wear out the carpet, and and I was a snarky young man um, at 18, and I said, is that like because they're Mexicans? Like, is that how carpet gets worn out? And it was awkward. I probably should have. Th- that was. I, th- I actually don't disagree with myself. I don't know if the way I did it uh, worked, right? Um, but that stood out to me. It was just like, really, the carpet? Like that's that's the problem. Um, the second, I would say, was maybe even went a little bit deeper, and that was this perception that we, if we if we did what it would take to bring those folks in or make space or engage with them, that we would lose something that we loved, that we enjoyed, that these people would change the dynamic of what was going on. There were beloved songs and beloved ways of doing things. And then if some of these kids and these Latinos and the refugees were here, we couldn't keep doing that the same. It just wouldn't work. Now, that was the adults that I perceived as leading the church and how they felt. But then there were my fellow younger folks. There's a youth group of us. And we were all consumed with what young people do, right? Our image. I had just been on a journey of, um, I, I had wanted to die. And I've shared this with, with many of you many times. But it was, it was purely around a girl who did not like me. Um, and I legitimately, though, was that low. And, uh, and that kept not working out for me. And I had seen myself, I'd been utterly consumed by this need for, for a person to see me and like me and affirm me, right? Um, and I saw that in a lot of my, in a lot of my friends, my, my other people in my youth group. We had our various vices, um, many of which, uh, many of those people, the, their lives were eroded by these, by the way, um, as they grew up. Um, So I heard these stories of God transforming lives in hard places at this youth conference. And I felt this deep sense of calling myself. And I read the book of Jonah and I saw his feelings toward Nineveh. And I read God's question at the end. And I decided this might be our question. Like, 
what about all these people? Like I was thinking, look outside. There's look at all, like in our situations, like any day at noon, look outside. There's a hundred people. There's more people than go to our churches standing here. And our posture toward them is please don't mess up the property. Now I didn't write it down, so I can't preach it to you, but, um, but this is the, this is the text I preached. And I realized it was kind of dear to my heart. So there's a, so you're going to get maybe just slightly more angst out of me um, this week. Maybe not. I don't know. I have, I am 40. But I'm going to talk to you about the calling we see in this book, the running we see in this short book, and the idea of being saved and, and who it's for. So here's how the book of Jonah begins, because we didn't read it all. It says, it begins this way. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This is just how the book begins. It's just straight out of the gate. And very soon after comes the fish and everything. Like that whole Jonah and the whale thing is real quick. It's like this happens. It, the call, he runs to a place called Tarshish. Um, it doesn't go well. Thrown overboard, fish spit up. This is all very quick at the end of the book. And many of you, if you haven't heard about that, Jared will tell you the story later. But it's, uh, it's wild. And it's all right there at the beginning of the book. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, go to Nineveh, the great city, call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Now, here's my question. How do you discern what you're called to do? Um, is it something that you choose because you're passionate? Um, how do you know that God is calling you to do something? That's something that, that I think of when I read this. In my old church, what I saw, what I was observing were cultural shifts and changes. There were worldwide political movements, the growth of urban centers, asylum seekers, worldwide politics, the results of urban sprawl and immigration. I didn't have names for those yet, right? But I saw people who needed help and they were in these situations because of all these dynamics, most of them outside of their control. Most of them, they were just born into and living out of, right? All these kids. Think about all these kids. They did not choose to be born there. They did not choose to be in this country. They, they're being born into this whole story. Now, what about in Jonah's case? God told him to go, right? That is kind of nice. It feels clear. It's like a missions trip. If I said to you, like we have our Mexico trips coming up, and if I just came in and said, look, you're all going, okay? You have to go. And you go, okay, we're going to Mexico, I know. And you don't, I don't, you wouldn't all do it. But if I were God, just imagine, you were like, I have to go, right? Um, so that feels clear. That feels really nice and clear. But here's the trouble is this was Nineveh of Assyria. And, you know, we're all quite distanced from, distanced from this time and place. But at the time, this was the, probably the biggest, wealthiest, and one of the most wicked cities in the world. So it was a, at a prime location on the Tigris River. Um, they had cutting edge technology, art, transportation. It was a trade center. Not only was it big and powerful, but to Jonah, it was also something of a subtle threat. It was the place where people from where Jonah lived were drawn by the allure of the wealth and success available there. It's kind of like, 
When, when Mike and I were in New York City, we learned a lot of Tucsonans end up in New York City. It's like, there's just so much more to do, so much more you could earn, so much more opportunity. It's that type of place where it's like, if you're somewhere small, this place has options and opportunities for you. It threatened in a way to supplant their way of life. And on top of that, it was pagan. There was an ancient God of prosperity and fertility who you gave yourself to body and spirit that was kind of the God of this city. But by Jonah's day, as is often the case, that deity was actually fading into the background because the kings of Assyria were increasingly powerful and they were beginning to call themselves gods and demanding worship. So they were actually supplanting the old pagan god with themselves as the gods. And so one of the highest ranks in the city of Nineveh, and one of the ways you could be most successful, was to be a eunuch, which was to utterly devote yourself to the rulers, even in your sexuality. You would give your entire self to them, and then you would succeed. That was a secure role in the city of Nineveh. So the city of Nineveh demanded worship and devotion, and it offered financial security and unparalleled wealth. It was beautiful with hanging gardens and boating canals, and it was a threat in a way to the Hebrew way of life because of how alluring it was, right? And that threat had moved into the area and developed nearby. Here's Google Maps for you. Um, so, you know, I always like to take a look at these things and if, uh, if we're, let's see, where are we at? Okay. So see, see Baghdad and Iraq, um, modern day Nineveh is about in, in Mosul in Iraq. And so you see where Jerusalem and Jordan are, it's not right there, but it's close. And you have to keep in mind that Nineveh was the center of an empire that was growing and spreading. So it's very much in the area, these shifting cultural and religious values. This wasn't this like far away thing. It was something that was gaining influence, moving in their direction. It was about the distance of some of our driving summer vacations away from Tucson in a way, okay? And so Jonah was called to go there and it was a long trip, no doubt on foot, but it was accessible and it was all on land. There were no terrifying bodies of water cross. For Jonah and his community, Nineveh was getting too close. Its influence was far closer than the city itself. So God did call Jonah to go to Nineveh, but it's also true that Nineveh was a development that was drawing near to Jonah. It was the result of political movements. It was the result of change. And why did God call Jonah to Nineveh? Well, the answer the book of Jonah supplies is at the end. You actually heard it when Daniel read. It was because he had pity on them. Now, we read the beginning and think this is a judgment message. What does it have to do with pity? Go cry out against them, right? Well, we tend to think the two are dissimilar too often, but they're not. My friend Rod talks about the woe to you passages that Jesus says as one of his favorite things to, to share, that woe to you, it's all about how, what voice you put it into. Have you ever thought about that? Like if you, if you say it, like imagine you hear those voices, Jesus talking to the Pharisees and he says, woe to you, you know, and he's like speaking condemnation from a big rock right over them and they're, ah, that sounds really 
judgmental. But imagine a voice that has grief in it. That's like, woe to you. Like, watch out. Like, oh no, this is terrible. And that's more of the sense behind it. And we learn from this book that God, when he wants to call out against Nineveh and warn them, it is out of that posture of concern for them. He has pity. He sees where their lives are headed. He sees the end result of this, right? Like we look back on the ruins of Nineveh, which do stand and we go, it didn't work. It didn't last, right? It didn't stick. And God, with his infinite foreknowledge, looks and says, this isn't going to stick and it's not good for your soul, what you do and who you are. Imagine a terrible scenario that would make you cry out, right? A vehicle is stuck on the train tracks or something like that. You would cry out that people get out of there like, oh no, right? Like get out. It, and it wouldn't even matter whether or not it was their fault because you just go, this is too terrible what's about to happen to you. And, and everything in you would move toward, you'd want to help them if you could. And that's the posture that God has toward the city of Nineveh. That's the gut feeling I was having, I think, as an 18-year-old. I, you know, look, I didn't have all the answers. I was 18. My family most definitely did not have it all together, nor did the people at my church. But I saw these kids running, roaming the streets whose parents were at times addicted to drugs or were at least too busy to take care of them. And I'm, and I'm thinking, I'm already seeing them in middle school, like resorting to petty crime and stuff like this. I saw refugees fighting to rebuild their lives, but tempted by the idols of American culture. And I'm thinking as an 18-year-old, like, no, 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 uh-uh, like, this isn't good. This isn't good. I sensed and saw this emptiness that I recognized because God had done something in me and had opened up my eyes. And I was like, that, this needs to be shared. And these people need this hope that I've found. So the question is, was my church called to see that too? Or was that just me? What did it mean that God had placed us in that neighborhood? Does that matter? What did it mean that some of us sensed the call and felt the need to speak up? And what about here? Admission, right? What about now in our time? What about this story we're in? What does it mean that God has brought us into the same space, into the same, into relationship with each other? What is he calling us to do? And where are the people that we are called to have pity on? I think we have some sense of it around here. Who does he have pity for that we might consider a threat to our way of doing things, right? Okay, that's the calling, the idea of calling. So God might call you to something. You see what I'm saying here? It doesn't mean you have to necessarily just have a passion. It might be situation, it might be because you're here. Now running. Um, first off, I do want to say, I love that old church. Um, I do. It wasn't all bad. They gave me a job at age 18. That's a big deal, right? Um, and they were fighting a core battle. And I also love missions so much in your heart. I seriously do. And I've just been at Cyclovia with some of you, and we've done so many things together. I see that. So hear me. Because 
I am gonna suggest we're no different than that church, and I want you to know I say this because I care. But Jonah ran, and he ran far. The book of Jonah is a little tough to date because it's hard to tell if it was closer to when Jonah would have lived or written much later. It sort of comes across like it was written later, to be honest, as a lesson. Um, either way, there are some really core symbols of this book that matter and are meant to teach us. So Nineveh, as you can see on here, if you were going from Jerusalem over to Iraq, is a safe journey across land, right? Tarshish is where Jonah decides to run. And guess where Tarshish is? You see Gibraltar over there? That's about Tarshish. So he ran a long way, right? If you, I, you don't think about that when you read the book. And it's all across the sea. And so this was not like, hey, I'm going to stay in Israel. Or I'm going to go down to Egypt. He was like, other side of the known world. This might have been the other side of the inhabited world. Like he may literally have run to what he thought was the edge of the earth because guess what? They were all flat earthers once upon a time. So he was out. Like he got, he, you know, you hear, like, oh, he put, he put some money into, he got a boat ride. No, that's like your life savings. Like he's going far, really, really far. Okay, so he ran and he ran hard and he ran far. And one of the symbolic elements here was that in the ancient times, there's this, and this is all over ancient literature and it's all over, honestly, the Bible, is that the sea is not safe. The sea is not only not safe because bad things happen in there, it's a place of deep fear and mystery. So think about how little we know about the sea now. Have you, have you heard this? There are depths of the sea we have no idea about. How much of it is undiscovered? I forgot to look up. Large percentage we have never seen, right? There was just a big story, right, that in China they found another fish, one type. This is world news. One type of fish we found that we've never found before. We got video of it. It looks weird, right? But back then, we don't know much. Back then, they had no idea. There's no scuba diving, right? Or any of that. And it terrified them. As a concept, the sea signifies the mysterious abyss. And it is not safe. And Jonah is like, I will run across that. No problem. Right after God, God, God called Jonah, Jonah ran. It says this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, call out against it for the evil is, their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's a key statement. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. He is literally trying to get to the end of the earth. He tried to run from God. Of course, that's kind of like, we, you know, that's a joke in a way. How, how are you going to do that? Jonah will confess later that his God is the creator of all the earth. So how do you run from the creator of all the earth? You, you can't, but he's going to try. And the fish swallowing thing is, I understand, wild. Um, I, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I will say scholars have always struggled with this. You can, you can read great scholars of the faith, Augustine, Used to, he, there's some private letters he wrote where he's like, I get mocked 
about Jonah. <laughs> he seriously wrote to his friend. He's like, they laugh at me because Jonah feels so crazy. What do I say to them? He was like writing to a mentor of his. And if it's a metaphor, what does it mean so I can explain it? Um, so it's, it's complicated. Um, but I'll tell you what, it, it stands for that. Just like the C in their day stood for something, like it was a real C, there was a real C, but there was a depth of meaning to that, this abyss. This whole story means something. Um, Augustine thought it was an impossibility. Oddly, people are more open to it now. It's hotly debated on Google. You can go out there. People have been swallowed whole by whales, they say. So there's people, that's, there's a guy like up in New England pretty recently who's, who's sure he was all the way in a whale and some people think he was and others think he wasn't. Um, people are swallowed whole by sharks. They usually die. Um, usually, <laughs> that's usually a done deal right there. When you get swallowed whole by the shark, you know, the bite's bad enough. Swallow whole. But then there's the whale shark, the combo. Um, and they're gentle giants, and people have been all the way in those. <laughs> and so it, hey, look, it's possible. It's possible. Um, but it's important to be kind of intellectually honest here and tell you, because I would want you to know this, okay? There are hundreds, almost 200 ancient myths about being swallowed by sea creatures. I just want you to know that as you go out into our world, right? That there are like but between 170 and 200 ancient stories about that sound kind of like Jonah. And most scholars consider Jonah to be similar to them. And it carries into our modern day. This is from Pinocchio, if you didn't know, right? Like, it's a major theme. Um, there are so many songs. I, look, I was trying to look for a song I've heard called Belly of the Beast. I couldn't find it because there's so many other songs called Belly of the Beast. Um, and usually in all these stories, and even interestingly in those songs, and even in the new Pinocchio, there's this clarity or discovery that happens at the core, at the belly of the beast. And some of these ancient stories are not meant to be judged by our modern scientific method. An ancient person, when they heard the book of Jonah, they did not ask the question. I'm telling you this. You need to know. They did not ask, is it possible for whales to swallow people? That's not what they asked. They asked, what does this mean? And is the meaning wise? Okay. So I actually personally think that there are real events behind these stories, behind these motifs that just like this guy in, uh, you know, in New England who claimed he was swallowed by a whale, like within the last few years. And it really, made, and he said he was, he made him think about his children and it, he reoriented his priorities. I actually have a feeling there are real stories behind this. But the big question that people would have asked is not, is it possible for people to be swallowed by whales? But what's the depth and the profundity of the discovery made in the belly of the beast? That's what they would have asked. When this person was at their darkest place, what did they discover? That's what they would have asked. And that's really what we should be asking as well, okay? So we're going to leave the whale question open, okay? And when we leave it open, I want you to or, uh, like think about the range of application that's possible, with it being open, because it's unfortunate when we read the story and our big question is, can people really be swallowed by fish? That's actually too small of a question. So here's the questions we should ask. Have you ever run from God? Okay, have you ever run from what God's called you to do or who God has called you to be? Have you ever plummeted downward? 
spiritually, emotionally, even physically. Consider Jonah and the stages. These stages are really important. First, there's the tempest on the sea and he is asleep. Now, this is not just like recounting the event. This is significant. He is asleep. He is not aware of what's even going on outside of him. He's not aware of the storm. And then the people on the ship, the pagans, the heathens, they turn against him because they discover that he's a Hebrew. And he says, I'm a Hebrew. My, my God is the creator of the sea and the land. That's a big thing for him to say. The depths of the sea that we do not understand, that we're terrified of. All the land, the whole earth. My God is the creator of them all. And they go, uh, okay. And you're not doing anything. And they get angry with him. Then he begins to sense his own guilt. And he realizes this is because I did not listen to the voice of God and follow where God has sent me. And he told them, I'm the problem, right? You're going to have to throw me off of the ship. So he senses the depth of his own guilt. Then he plunges into the cold black abyss of terror, of absolute terror, right? And you think like that's, that's what they're most afraid of. And then not only that, but here comes the beast, Wa-boom, right? Like he, this is like the lowest of the low. This is to where in his Psalm that he writes, he's dead. Like he views it as I have died. I'm all the way down as far as I can possibly go. Okay. What will it take for Jonah to cry out to God is the question you should be asked. As you go along, you're like, He's asleep. He's not even thinking about God. Okay, now he's acknowledging he knows God, but he says, you're going to have to throw me off. Now he's in the, in the sea. Will he cry out to God? Now he's in the, in the belly of the fish waiting for digestion. And then he cries out to God. What will it take? The question you should be asking for yourselves, we should all be asking, where am I and what's it going to take? Am I asleep like, am I drifting through this life as if, like, everything I live for is all that there is, right? Or am I recognizing my, my issues, my guilt, like who I am and what I bring to the table? Am I, can I see that? Can I say, look, I know who God is, and I'm not, I'm not really walking in step with Jesus. Can you see it? Or are you at that place where you're actually like feeling spiritually like you're entering into the sea? Like you're, get, you're going somewhere bad. It's not, it's not good anymore. Like it's starting to get real dark. Or are you worried that this is the end? Hmm. What level of depths have you experienced? And what will it take? Notice the deeper range of application you discover when it's not just a scientific question. It never was just a scientific question. It's always been about the compounding depths of darkness, a person who's called by God will face when they run from him and the calling that he's put on their lives. Jonah is not, by the way, the story of a man abandoned by God. It's clear to say it's a story of a man running from God. But why? 
And this is important. And I know but often overlooked in our own stories. Jonah's not running because he doesn't want to believe in God. He does believe in God. He's not like an ex-evangelical, right? He didn't, he didn't like read the great, you know, blog post and go, no, man, it's not real. He believes in God. He, he isn't running because he thinks God is cruel or unsafe. He's not running because he doesn't like God. In fact, he knows God is not unsafe or cruel. Why is he running? Well, we find out inside the belly of the fish. It says this in uh, chapter three, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. This is the second time and call out against it. The message I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh um, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Notice Jonah's only a third of the way into the city and they, they're receptive. They listen to him. It says the word reached the king of Nineveh. Now this part's shocking. The king of Nineveh, remember I told you this, this would have been one of the kings that wants to be worshiped. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. This is what a Hebrew person does when they mourn in the deepest way. And he issues a proclamation and publishes it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and the nobles, let neither man or beast nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do that. That is a surprise in the story, but here comes a bigger surprise. This is the bigger surprise. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, isn't this what I said when I was in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. And here comes the reason for his running. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me. It's better for me to die than to live. You didn't see that coming, did you? Jonah's running from the grace of God. Jonah is running from the implications of God's goodness to others upon himself. It scares him that he's going to have to deal with a reconciled Nineveh, with a forgiven Nineveh, what it's going to cost him, that the people who threatened him, he will have to embrace and call them brother. Jonah is running from foundational Christian callings, like love your enemies and forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. He's running from foundational Christian principles like those who receive mercy must give mercy to show they understand mercy. Jonah is running from the implications of God's grace. Grace, see, is costly. 
We know that for God to wash away our sins, that is our sins, our tiniest mistakes to our blatant rebellion, anything that's imperfect, for God to wash away our sins, it cost Jesus his life. He had to suffer and die. He's compared to Jonah in that he was in the grave for three days. Now, maybe we know that it will cost us too. What about my old church, right? That carpet, thousands of dollars, right? The comforts, the way we like our lives to be. If we were to fling open the doors to those neighborhood kids, to people from another culture, to refugees, guess what? It would have cost us big time. It would have changed our way of life. I would bet back then if we had figured out a way and thrown open the doors and said, hey, kids, you can come in here and get out of the sun and do your homework and we're going to walk with you and get to know you and help you, that they would have filled up the place. If we truly opened our hearts and gave ourselves, I started helping kids with their homework and letting them play basketball and I couldn't let them in the building but we would always have a full court of kids. But imagine the cost that would have come if we'd let them all in. We would have had to have had 20 volunteers a day. Yes, the carpet would have been absolutely ruined. The pews would have been scratched up. The sound system would would have gotten totally jacked. They would have messed up all the cables. Yes, they would have, right? It's all true. Grace has its costs. And some are even very tangible and material. Uh, Wayne Gordon, a well-known pastor in West Chicago, once asked his neighborhood what they needed. And he thought they were going to say something like, you know, advocacy or, you know, somebody to help pick up trash. And they said, a laundromat that's affordable. (laughs) That was like the overwhelming answer. And he came back, he tells this story and he's like, okay, laundromat. What? Well, we don't have a building. And someone said, well, yeah, we do the church. Oh. (laughs) So at Lawndale Community Church in Chicago, Illinois, back when they first got started, they filled the church. They had to pay for all the electrical. Think of all that 220 wiring. And they filled the whole stinking place with washers and dryers. Yeah. And guess what? People came and they did their laundry. That costs a lot. That's a lot of time and effort. That changes your way of life. I guarantee you, Wayne did not, did not want to run a laundromat. I guarantee no one in the church got into doing church to run laundromats, right? Not what they wanted to do. See, my old church wasn't wrong. The carpet would get destroyed. We would have had financial problems. I would bet you donors would have left. They also weren't wrong that their church experience would get messed up. It would. If you invite all those people, you can't just like sing a hymn from 1910 and be like, hey, kids, you have to get creative and you got to let go of some stuff. And maybe they'd like the hymn. Who knows? That maybe. I don't know. But you're going to have to change something. You would. I mean, I remember when I was uh, speaking of Chicago, when I lived there, I was doing, I did youth work. Girl punched me in the face. A girl. She came, she clobbered me right in the face. I was like, I, okay. Like, it's, it's complicated out there, right? It is. Honestly, when you do anything that deeply matters, you fight an injustice, adopt an orphan, befriend someone with mental health struggles, have a child, get a job you believe in, get married, it will cost you. 
I think we need like Monty Williams of the, of the Phoenix Suns to be our pastor every once in a while. Do you know what he says? He tells his guys, everything we want to do is on the other side of hard. Everything we believe in is on the other side of hard. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah you want to win an NBA championship? Hard. Want to follow Jesus? Hard. Want to love a community? Yeah, hard. It's going to be really hard. Look, our church doesn't even have carpet. That's probably, like, I, I'm the leader. I probably was like, we can't. I can't even remember what I was thinking. But there are many things we do well. We aren't, but we aren't better than my old church. We're open to, open to diversity. We're more blue collar than they were, I suppose. But look, we run from offering grace to those we don't want here. We run from offering ourselves just as well. My old church did it in acceptable ways to them. They didn't want to spend money. They all understood each other on that, right? Um, here's a way to look at it. This comes from the Jonah story. This was meant to help other people compare their situations. Jonah builds a little shelter for himself. There's a plant that comes up over the shelter and God gives him the plant. God sends a worm and it kills the plant and Jonah gets very angry. It seems a little bit wild, right? But God uses this to expose him and how petty he is. He's mourning for a plant that keeps a little sun off his skin, but he doesn't care about an empire's worth of people in a city of 120,000. By the way, Tucson's quite larger, right? He doesn't care about 120,000 people who even then were infected with skins, with sins, cancer, skin cancer, cyclovia. Um, they were infected with sin's cancer, breaking down under the heat of God's holiness before who they will not be able to stand at the judgment and he's mad that he doesn't get some shade. We're supposed to use that and go, what is it for us? That plant stands for something. Let's compare and contrast. What plants do we mourn? What convenience when removed irks you? What anticipated gift of God, if it were taken away, would make you seethe with anger? What do you have to have for your life to be happy? What do you not have anymore that angers you, that takes up your headspace and your prayers, right? If only I had this, if only that hadn't happened to me. Behind those lines of thought are our similarities to Jonah and to my old church. In a church like, church like this, it might not be the, car, the carpet or the traditions. It might be me time, adventure. I feel a little off. We might not want to go to Nineveh, the Nineveh that has political radicals in it. You know, the ones on the other side. We might not throw our doors open, even to the skeptics and unchurched people that we profess to care so much about because it would interrupt connecting with our friends and throw off our work-life balance. And honestly, like my old church, we don't really like to see our money go out the door either. My old church would give all their money and then they'd hold it. We haven't even really learned all to give it. We aren't so different. They say what we believe in most is what we worship. And some say what we believe in most in this life is exposed by our bank statement. What would that mean if we looked at our bank statement and said, where do I run? What plants do I think I need, right? And in our church, it might even be plants. <laughs> we 
We love like succulents and stuff. I mean, I don't know, like if we put our plant budget next to our serving others budget, we might actually fall short there. Now, maybe some of us have learned from our running. Maybe some of us have seen that when we run from God, it doesn't do us well. But Jonah was written to teach us we don't have to run. We don't have to run. God is gracious. He forgives anyone who will receive it. We're a people with a calling, not just to pick a good religion, but to live for the sake of others, to have pity on those who God has pity on and who he's inviting to be saved. The last thing I want to say here is about what it takes to be saved. We do learn this from the king of Nineveh who warned his people. They repented. And repentance means to turn around. Um, and it means to turn, change your mind and turn around. So when, you, when you're living your life, you live it for a reason, right? You make the choices you make for a reason. To repent in order to turn around and live a different way, which is what that word means, you have to live for a new reason. You're not going to just change your behavior. You have to change your destination. You have to start saying following Jesus is going to be my aim. And the king of Nineveh showed us how to do that. But the Ninevites aren't the only ones who are saved in the book of Jonah. This story is meant to teach believers first. It was meant to remind the church, the gathering of believers, what their calling is, what their God is like, and what it means to worship God and follow Jesus. The greatest salvation in Jonah is signaled in the song that he writes in the belly of the beast. He wrote, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, which is a word that's often used for hell itself, which is what he called the belly of the beast, right? I cried and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounds me. Weeds are wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. That's what Jonah had been doing. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, God loved Jonah. He loved him enough to chase after him. He did the, the hard work of a great parent. He disciplined the one that he loved. See, sometimes we who profess to follow Jesus, those of us in the church, we run to our idols, to the familiar, the safe, and what we love the most. And we feel, naturally so, that a loving God would leave us alone and give us what we want. But that is not what he does, nor has ever done. Maybe you think you're too far gone right? Maybe you think you've gone too far. Well, God went all the way to the depths to save Jonah. He'll do the same for you. Maybe you don't even realize how much you are running. Maybe you are asleep. Or maybe like the Ninevites, you're just doing what everyone else in your circles does. Maybe we think our plans, our successes, our favorite version of life is safe. You don't have to feel terrible to be in trouble, but no matter what, Jesus passed through utter chaos. He experienced people turning on him. He was thrown into the depths. 
for us. Am I stretching the meaning of this book? Well, Jesus said, I'm not. Matthew 12. Here he was talking to judgmental people, Pharisees, and he said, every careless word that you say, you're going to be judged for. Remember, that's, you can say that in love. And some of the scribes and Pharisees said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. That's the words of Jesus. Religious people like the Pharisees have a hard time understanding the cost of every careless word and every failure and every time we run and what it places on Jesus. But God's people are those who are called to go where he goes, to pity who he pities, to love who he loves, to go after those he's calling to himself who know that salvation is of the Lord and it's worth the cost. We should be known for it being worth the cost. We should. That's what I want to, like, I said this to my old church as an 18-year-old. I want to say it to us. We should be known for that. Not for doing our own thing, but for being absolutely lavish in our attempts to love others and to tell them about Jesus. Jesus will settle for no less. He'll pursue his church to the depths to do it. And people in our city and in our lives, guess what? They just might listen if we'd really heed the call. Mission, who has God called us to extend this grace toward? He's passed through death, through the belly of the beast to love us. How can we not pity who he pities and go where he goes? Jesus, of course, starts with giving us the salvation that we're called to offer. That's what happened with Jonah. Jonah got the salvation from the belly of the beast, right? And then he goes. And, he, and then he was compelling. He got angry again. <laughs> he cycled through it again. But God gave him salvation so that he could take it out. And that's what he's done for us on the cross. When he sat down with his disciples, right? His mixed up group of disciples that had all kinds of wild motives. Many of them would run away from him um, for a time. And he took the bread from the table and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood, he said, of the cup that is shed from, for you. Basically, he was saying that one who is greater than Jonah is here and it's me and it's happening now. Consider this God has called us and he sent us. What does it mean that God has placed us here? As you come up and receive this today, ask the question, do I understand what it costs for him to go to the depths to save me? And when we go out from this table, ask the question, what is he calling us to do? And don't put it off like even today. Start with today. What's he calling me to do today? What cost do I need to consider paying in order to share his love that was so costly 
on my behalf. I'm going to pray, and there's going to be two minutes of silence. And after that, um, I'm supposed to talk about three things we do. Look at that. Um, Mike made the best slide ever, and I missed it last week. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. So the way that we're going to do that is after a time of silence, I'm going to, I'm going to leave a space of silent confession for you. And that is a time for you to just sit with God and ask these questions. Walk through these things. If you need to confess a sin, you can confess sin. If you need to confess to him that you might be running, if you need to ask him to just make his voice known to you, this is a time for you, two minutes of silence. And then after that, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Mike's going to come up, and he's going to start playing some music at that time. And then when I, I come up here to the table, that's your cue. You're welcome. Who's welcome? Anyone who can say, I need the grace of Jesus. If you can see that you need it, and you can comprehend he's done it for you, you are welcome to his table. That's all it takes just to be open-handed, just to say, I accept, okay? Um, we're going to sing together. Um, like I said, Mike and the band are going to lead us in worship. This is a great chance. I mean, see what happens when somebody is saved. Jonah from the belly of the fish writes a song. Worship is a right response to the goodness of God. And then we have giving that's in the back. I did bring it up in the sermon this week. It's a one of my least favorite things to bring up. It's not my favorite, as many of you know. But here's the deal. Um, the belief behind this is all of our money is from God. He gives us every single thing that we have. This is an acknowledgement that it's his. If this is the work that he's doing, if he's called us to do this together, we got to pitch in. So the invitation now is to come to him by faith to bring your cares and your needs and your confessions to him. I'm going to open us in prayer and leave two minutes of time for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am so, um, well, I'm so honored that since age 18, I still get to, to talk about these things. It's kind of cool. I don't think about that a lot, that you, um, you did call me back in the day, and you have been so faithful despite my many, many sessions of running I'm sure I'm not alone. Uh, my assumption is everyone in this room is here to worship you because they sense a call in their lives too, a call to maybe know who you are, a call to listen to you, a call to be responsive to you. And, um, and we're here. And so speak to us and work in us. Um, we hate to even ask, ask you to do this, but if there's a level of depth we have to go to, for you to break through to us in love, well, take us there. And, um, and help us to hear your voice and listen before we go too far. Would you become our salvation and help us to sing about it and help us to take it out to the world? Um, lead us as we ask these questions and confess.